Now, looking back, what made the year 2017 significant? Well, maybe you say, well, that was two years before COVID-19 first was spawned wherever it was spawned. No, that, they didn't know that. We didn't know that in 2017. What did we know in 2017? It was the 500-year anniversary of what? Of the Reformation. Of Martin Luther's nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And so since Christ came, since the gospel spread through the world, especially Europe, it came on hard times in Europe, and it seemed as if the light was about to be snuffed out. And yet God's on his throne. And in the year 1517, there was a time of great revival that was begun. And so we're going to consider this morning uh, the life of the man who penned the hymn that we just sang, Martin Luther. Uh, we want to understand something of his life and times and how God used him, how God saved him, and then how God used him. And it may be that you say, well, didn't we study this? Wasn't it just a few years ago? Well, it was actually 2015 that uh, Pastor Smith was going through his church history studies. And according to Pastor Carlson, uh, Martin Luther was in 2015, to which I replied, no, Martin Luther was in 1517. So, but anyway, there we are. We're going to just review it. So if you remember eight years ago, well, go to sleep. No, no, never mind that. But it won't hurt to hear it again. As my background, my uh, sources for, for this information, for this lecture, are Daubigny's History of the Reformation. I was reading it again last night, because I just learned yesterday about uh, taking this over. Uh, and reading it again, what a thrilling story. And also Pastor David Merck's uh, lectures on church history, his notes, which I have. Uh, these are some of my sources. Anyway, background to the Reformation. This didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just something that, well, it did kind of suddenly appear, but God was working in history. First part of the background to the Reformation is Christ's promise. We can't forget that what happens on earth was purposed in heaven. God's purpose Christ promised that he will build his church. This will take place. Now, we are here, and as in God's providence, we're thin on the ground this morning with travel and so on this summer. But God's not limited. God is not hindered by few. God is not helped by many. He will accomplish his purpose. And there in Europe, in the early part of the 16th century, I mean, Christians, real Christians, were very thin on the ground. You didn't find many of them. In, in uh, Daubigny's History of the Reformation, he goes through in the first volume, I think it's one of those early chapters, some of the men that seemed to be genuine Christians already about the time that Martin Luther appeared, but they were not the thunderbolts <laughs> that Martin Luther was. Uh, but Christ will build his church. That's our confidence. If you think things look bleak now, think 1517. Things were absolutely dark in Christendom, if you can 
use that term. Well, why then did God choose 1517 to bring about this great revival? Why did he wait? Why did he let things decay so long? And in our day, don't we sometimes ask that same question? Is God asleep? Doesn't he see what's going on in the United States of America? Of course he's not asleep. He wasn't asleep in Europe those long centuries. Why 1517? Because thus it was well-pleasing in his sight. There's no other explanation. It's not that they deserved it more than a century before. It was well-pleasing in God's sight. And so we essentially have to bow also to the sovereignty of God. We labor, we pray, but ultimately we acknowledge God is working out his purpose, and it will prevail. But there were other reasons in God's orchestrating of all events, because all events are in God's hands, and he works all things together. And so what were the other factors, humanly speaking, that contributed to the Reformation taking place at that point in history? Well, there were intellectual and technological factors. For one thing, there was the expansion of knowledge greatly at the time of the Renaissance, the uh, expansion of knowledge that was taking place in society at large. Universities were being founded. Classical learning was being rediscovered. Uh, even the Catholic th clergy during the Dark Ages, were they were supposed to be the guardians of knowledge, but they were ignorant in fact, they were the guardians of ignorance, if, uh, if you will. But there was an awakened thirst for knowledge in society at large. And even the study of biblical languages was spreading. Greek and Hebrew, you have Erasmus, that Greek scholar. Uh, others were teaching these languages, which, of course, was promoting biblical studies. Then another technical factor or intellectual factor was the invention of the printing press. 1440, Gutenberg uh, invented his printing press with movable type that you could set and print a whole page. Before that, if they printed anything, it had to be carved each individual page and then pressed. And you can imagine that was quite a laborious process if it was going to be done at all. Now you have movable type, so you can reset each line and print a bunch of pages, then you reset those type, print the next, you know, quarto or the next uh, huge sheet that gets folded up and made into a book. This was 1440, so just, oh, 70 years or so before uh, Martin Luther. So books are now available. Books are now spreading. They're cheaper than they used to be when they were handwritten, hand copied. So books are now available within the reach of the common man. And we'll see how uh, this was a factor even for Martin Luther. There are also political and economic factors. Powerful nations now were being united. You used to have just these little fiefdoms here and there. And now the, there are nations being formed. Spain, France, England, there's more of a united kingdom, if you will, in these places. Even in Germany, some regions, you had all of these little states, 
But some regions, like Luther's Saxony, were becoming stronger and more independent-minded. And this then challenges the authority of the Pope. These nations were exerting their independence from Rome. And they set their eyes on all the land and the wealth that the church controlled. They wanted to stem the greed and lust of the church for money and power. But also another societal factor was the unrest among the peasants. And you're having peasant revolts taking place here and there throughout Europe, especially in Germany. Uh, they're seeking redress for their complaints against the powers that be. And this upsets things and creates a climate of looking for more. There were religious factors. Moral decline, especially among the clergy. It was well known that the clergy was immoral, corrupt. Uh, they knew their wine better than they knew their Bible. I recently uh, read a book about, or just skimmed a book about the time of Pope Leo, who was the Pope just before the Reformation, and it was scandalous. It was absolutely wicked, the things that were taking place in the court of Rome. But then the papacy was also being weakened. If you're a little familiar with the history of Europe, not long before this time, the, there, were, there was the Pope, there was the anti-Pope. At one time, there were three rival popes vying for the true power. Uh, there was the Pope, the papacy relocated from Rome to Amignon in France. Uh, and so all of this weakened the power, the influence of the papacy. So all of these things are, are going on. Uh, another thing in the, in the religious world was the church's greed for money. They were, uh, in 1476, Pope Sixtus IV, you want to say Sixtus VI, but he was Sixtus IV, declared as an article of faith that forgiveness could be obtained by the payment of a price. And this led to the sale of indulgences. 1476, so again, about uh, 40 years or so before the Reformation was kicked off by Martin Luther's nailing the theses to the door of the church. Selling forgiveness. And of course, then the church seized upon this as a means of raising money. And the need for money was increased substantially when they began the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. This was begun April 1506, so that's just in this time frame, and finally completed November 1626. So it's 120 years in construction. The total cost was 46,800,052 ducats. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly because I don't have any in my pocket. I've never used one. But uh, 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 that would be about 200, more than $200 billion if the gold were valued at today's price. And so the Roman uh, church was in desperate need of money. So what they were doing to raise money, they would sell bishoprics. 
I, if you watch the movie of Martin Luther, the black, old black and white one, I remember that uh, there was this one man who wanted to buy a bishopric, and he said, uh, uh, there, uh, there were, there, what did he say, seven, um, the number seven is special, I'll pay 7,000 ducats. And the Pope said, no, there are 12 apostles, it should be 12,000 ducats. And so they bargained and settled on somehow that there were uh, uh, 10, they settled on 10,000 at any rate. Well, 10 commandments, that's what it was, 10,000 ducats. Well, uh, selling bishoprics was a way of generating income. And so you could be a bishop if you had 10,000 ducats. And of course, why would you want to be a bishop? Because you could make money as a bishop. Then they sold indulgences. You can sell forgiveness. And so they're using this false teaching as a way of generating income. And all of this is, is obviously wicked. It's obviously for money. It's the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil. And the common people, although they were still drowning in superstition, they were swallowing uh, this, but they were at the same time sensing there's something wrong here. The church should not be in the business of making money. Now, in this situation, Martin Luther appeared. So a little bit about his background. He was born in 1483 in the town of Eiselben to a peasant family. His father was originally a woodcutter, and Martin Luther says of him, we were quite poor, uh, cutting wood, selling wood for firewood and other things. So uh, that was his way of uh, making a living. But then he became a miner. And when he became a miner, he prospered even somewhat more. His father loved to read. Now, not everybody could read in those days, so his father had some education. His father sought to obtain books as often as he could. Well, you see how, for young Martin Luther, this is the stimulation of his intellect. So he, the family moved to Mansfield to work in the mines that were there. So transfer from Eiselman to Mansfield. And this was three hours walk from, from Eiselman. He eventually established two smelting furnaces. So not only mining the ore, but then refining the ore into metals. And so this enabled him to provide for Martin's education. Uh, his mother, Margaret, was a good, pious woman. Daubigny says of her, Margaret possessed all the virtues that can adorn a good and pious woman. Her modesty, her fear of God, her prayerful spirit were particularly remarked. She was looked upon by the matrons of the neighborhood as a model whom they should strive to imitate. And so he had a, a good mother, fairly strict, we'll find out. And he went to elementary Latin school there in Mansfield from 1490 to 97, kind of elementary school, you learn Latin. His father wanted Martin to become a lawyer. So he was educating him, thinking, you know, okay, you get a lawyer's son, you got it made, right? So he was pushing Martin in that direction. Martin was severely disciplined as a boy. I don't think he was more naughty than other boys of his day, but uh, by both his parents and schoolmasters, he was whipped severely. Once at school, he was whipped 15 times in one morning. TCS, is that uh, a common practice? 
here in the school, maybe it ought to be. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I got I got uh, paddling in school when I was in elementary school, so you know it, it it used to happen anyway. It happened to Martin though, fifteen times in one morning. I never had that. One time, his mother beat him until he bled. For what? For stealing a hazelnut. Well, that's not a good thing to steal, but. 50, beating him till he bled. So in other words, he caught it for naughtiness of one sort or another. Then at age 14, he went away to boarding school. There was a better school in Magdeburg, uh, some distance from uh, their town Mansfield. And then in 1498, he went to a, another school, Eisenach, in, in Eisenach, where he would go door to door singing to beg bread. I guess his father was able to pay for the education, but room and board, or at least board, was another story. So he and some other friends would go from door to door singing and hoping for a handout. He says himself, uh, this is his own words, I was once a poor beggar seeking my bread at people's houses. Until one day he was outside the door of a, a certain house and he had been turned away from uh, several doors, several houses, and he was about to the point of despair in his hunger when the door opened and a good lady in this house spied him there, felt pity on him, invited him to her table. She and her husband took him in and he was enabled then to devote his time more to his studies than seeking to fill his belly. Uh, he was really taken in and given a second home. So he pursued Latin and music. Music. He could write hymns. And this was all prepared. The way for this was prepared in his early education. At age 18, he went away to university. The most famous university in Germany was in Erfurt. And he here finished his bachelor's degree and then his master's degree. And he developed his habits of meditation and prayer. He's not yet converted, but with this uh, Catholic background instilled in him that he needs to seek God for help. It says, and this was Martin Luther's words, to pray well is the better half of study. So he would pray before he began his studies. While he was there in this university, he found a Latin Bible in the library. Not much used. It was kind of neglected over and a quarter. But he found God's word in this Bible, Latin Bible. And he went back again and again. In the midst of his studies of other things, he found treasure in this Bible. As Daubigny says, the Reformation was hidden in that Bible. The discovery of that Bible was a key to what took place in Martin Luther's heart. Well, then there were times of spiritual awakening as he's in this period of university studies, again, preparing for law. One of his friends was killed in a brawl. And Martin Luther was given pause. What if that were I? If that were Martin Luther, who was killed, where would I be? What is the state of my soul? Am I ready to die? And then another time, 
In this same period, he was traveling home and he was carrying a dagger. I don't know in, in what way, but the dagger fell and accidentally cut a main artery in his leg. And he could have bled to death. But one of his friends who was with him ran for help. The wound was bound and the bleeding stopped. And another event, as he was traveling, a sudden thunderstorm came up while he's on the road and a lightning bolt knocked him to the ground. He cried to Saint Anna, promising that he would become a monk. He was spared. Now, let me just pause here. Have you ever had events like that in your life where, you know, your life is hanging by a thread or perhaps you came that close to death? Mitch Lush, in his testimony, maybe you remember this event, recounted that one of his friends in high school was driving the tractor because he grew up on the farm with his friends growing up on farms and the tractor flipped over and he was killed, his friend. And Mitch Lush, in his own testimony, said that, that shook him and caused him to become serious about his soul. Martin Luther had that ex experience with this thunderstorm, with his friend being killed, with this dagger uh, cutting his leg. How about you? Have you had such events? You realize your life is hanging by a thread. No man knows what a day will bring forth. Are we ready to die? That was the thought that occupied Martin Luther's heart. And so his solution? I'll become a monk, and then I'll be sure that I'm going to go to heaven. Well, that was all that he knew. To draw near to God, have his guilt taken away, the best thing to do is become holy. Do good works, and then you'll be ready to die. Now again, let me pause. <laughs> was that the truth? Was that the way to God? Was that the way to have his sin forgiven? To be as good as you can? You see, Martin Luther had already been beaten so many times. He already knew he was a naughty child. He already knew he was a sinner. That's why his guilt, his guilty heart was accusing him when these accidents happened. Are you ready to die? Well, he knew he was not. Well, what happened in the monastery? Having seen his early life, let's move on to his monasterial life. The Augustinians accepted him. Against his father's wishes, remember his father wants him to be a lawyer, and that's more lucrative perhaps than going into the church, but especially going into a monastery, you're not going to make as much money there. So he went to the, but against his father's wishes, he went to the Augustinian monastery and he was accepted. He wanted peace with God. He did his best to earn forgiveness there. He prayed, he punished his body which would mean flagellation, starving. He, he was at, at times close to death in the monastery. He tried to merit salvation by his own works. But in spite of all he did, and he did more than his fellow monks, he did not have peace, did not have peace of heart. And he wasted away in strength because of his diet, starving himself, fasting so often. Well, one good thing about the monastery was that it allowed him to continue his studies. Uh, the 
heads of the monastery recognized in Martin Luther intellectual skill and ability. So they allowed him and they, in fact, uh, sponsored him to study at the university. He loved Augustine with his teaching of sin and of grace. He read Occam with his doubts of papal authority and doubts of transubstantiation. He learned Greek and Hebrew and began to study the scriptures in the original languages. But even as he read the Bible now, because he's, that's his job in a sense, in the university, it troubles him. Because what does he see in the Bible? He sees the holiness of God. He sees that God hates sin. And the monastery is not helping him to see his way to peace. It only says, you got to do better. And he tries harder and harder, but God's anger and wrath against sin is like a dark cloud hanging over him. And he cannot find peace. The monastery didn't help him because his fellow monks thought he was crazy. Just chill. You know, just do go through the motions. You're okay. But he didn't have peace. One other good thing in this monastery was that the head of the Augustinian order in Germany was a man named John Staupitz. And Staupitz, um, I don't know all of the condition of his soul, but one thing he knew was that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Even in the superstitious view of the mass, Staupitz said, Christ is not a punisher, but a savior. And he pointed Martin Luther to the words of the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Christ does not terrify. He consoles. Look at the wounds of Jesus, he said to Martin Luther. Those wounds he suffered to pay for sin. If he paid for sin, it's paid for. So this man, John Staupitz, was a comfort to Martin Luther and began to point him away from his terror to Christ as a savior. Well, the light began to dawn. And as he's reading in scripture, he comes to the book of Romans. Now we're studying the book of Romans. Pastor Chansky has been leading us through a detailed exposition of this book. But you remember going back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Martin Luther paused there. He stopped with that phrase. The righteousness of God, that perfect holiness in which he hates sin. He cannot bear to look at it. And he was terrified at this phrase, the righteousness of a righteous God who has a righteous judgment, the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, a sinner. How could he ever have a righteousness that would satisfy a righteous God? And then yet he came to this next phrase. 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And he's trying, he's pondering this. He's trying to understand how can the righteous live by faith? He's studying now in Greek. The light came to him more and more that it's not by our works, but by the works of Christ that we are made righteous. It's not our doing. It's not our keeping of God's law that will make us pure in God's sight. That's impossible. But it's by Jesus' perfect righteousness, which he gives to all who come to him by faith. The light begins to dawn. It's Christ received by faith. Now, there's a lot of fog here because, he, remember, he's been steeped in this idea, uh, pounded into him that you've got to be good to get to God. You have to do good works. You have to earn this by your performance. But in this period, he's now made a professor at Wittenberg, at the university there. He's a Roman priest. He has graduated from uh, the university and now he's a professor of theology. The elector, Prince Frederick, the elector of this area of Saxony, is looking for scholars for his new university. And Staupitz recommended Luther to this post. So he accepted it somewhat reluctantly at first, uh, but he saw that it gave him the opportunity to study the Bible more as a professor. But he continues to struggle with these superstitions. At one time, he was commissioned by the Order of the Augustinians to represent them at some conference or some meeting in Rome. I still believe that the Pope was the head of the church, and he thought that the Pope was a righteous man trying to promote goodness. That was his conception. And so he thought that at Rome, he would find the holy city, that seat of godliness. But the nearer he got to Rome... This is documented in, in the history books. The more wickedness he found. A group of priests that he uh, met with there told him with great mirth how they would proclaim at the mass in Latin, which people didn't understand. Panis est at panis manibus. Which is, Latin students, bread thou art and bread thou shalt remain. The priests say this. You're just bread, and you're still bread. And the people bow in reverence and worship the bread. And they're laughing about it before Martin Luther. Well, he was appalled. These are priests in the holy city making mockery of what he thought was holy. And there was also there in Rome this uh, opportunity to gain merit with God. The Pope had promised that for every step that you climbed of the, of the Pilate's staircase, on your knees, you would have so many sins forgiven. And so he climbed these stairs, uh, going through his beads, saying his prayers on his knees, and he got some way up the stairs... And he thought he heard a voice of thunder which cried at the bottom of his heart, the just shall live 
by faith. Now reading from uh, Daubigny. These words, which had already on two different occasions struck him like the voice of an angel of God, resounded loudly and incessantly within him. He rises up in amazement from the steps along which he was dragging his body, horrified at himself and ashamed to see how far superstition has abased him. He flies far from the scene of his folly. No, this is not going to earn merit. I have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Why do I need to do this to somehow gain merit? This is not going to do any good for my soul. Christ has done it all. This rings in his heart. Luther had carefully studied, going on with Daubigny, Luther had carefully studied the epistle to the Romans. And yet, though justification by faith is there taught, he had never seen it so clearly. Now he comprehends the righteousness which alone can stand in the presence of God. He now receives from God himself by the hand of Christ that obedience which he freely imputes to the sinner as soon as he humbly turns his eye to the God-man who was crucified. Have you seen the righteousness of Christ as your only hope? Have you seen that if you have Christ's righteousness, that perfect righteousness, you can't add anything to it? Your doing, your dying, your suffering is not going to earn anything with God. It's all what Christ has done. Now, when we receive that, of course, we want to live pleasing to Him. We want to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be more like our Savior, but that doesn't add one little bit to the righteousness we need for salvation. It's all the doing and dying of Jesus. And Martin Luther now recognizes this. And so he goes back to Germany after this, and he, and he says, by the way, that he wouldn't trade that experience in Rome and the things it taught him for all the ducats that you could ever find. He, it was a great learning experience to see where Rome was, what Rome was teaching, and the gospel by contrast. Well, this leads now to a conflict, a confrontation, because he sees that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, and the Roman Catholic Church is teaching something else. Now, at this time again, there's the need for finances in Rome. The popes are, are building this uh, St. Peter's Basilica. The expense was enormous. And so they're selling bishoprics and church offices and indulgences. So you could buy freedom from years in purgatory for yourself or for your loved ones. And of course, this is playing on the heartstrings of the people. Oh, your mother there in purgatory, don't you want to see her set free from the suffering that she has there because of her mortal sins that, or her, her venial sins that need to be burned off so that she can enter into heaven itself. And so this pitch is being made all over uh, Europe, but especially now in Germany, this man, this German monk from Leipzig named Tetzel is the salesman par excellence. He goes around the German states to offer these for sale. And there's a graduated scale of payment 
based on your social rank, how much money you have, and the sin committed. The worse the sin, the more you have to pay. The more money you have, the more you have to pay. So he said, and here's a quote, the moment the coin in the money box rings, the tormented soul from purgatory springs. Of course, that's got to be translated from German. But the uh, coin goes in the box. Your mom, your dad, your aunt gets freed from purgatory. Don't you want to see them set free? Oh, have pity on your poor departed loved ones. So some were even prepared to buy an indulgence for sins they contemplated doing. Now, I won't vouch for the veracity of this account, but I heard this story that one man went to Tetzel and paid a sum of money for a sin he was contemplating. He wanted to do. And so he paid this money, got forgiveness for this sin he was going to do. And then he turned around and robbed Tetzel of his money box. And uh, when he was going to be prosecuted, he said, no, I have this <laughs> indulgence that gives me forgiveness for my sin. I know, again, I won't swear to the veracity, but I've heard that story. So anyway, um, now he's coming to Wittenberg this man Tetzel. He's going to have a little fight because Martin Luther realizes that it's not money that buys forgiveness. It's the work of Christ that grants forgiveness. And that alone. And he sees the corruption that this sale of indulgences is spreading. So here are some of the claims of Tetzel. And these are quotes from, from history books. I would not change my privileges for those of St. Peter in heaven, for I have saved more souls by my indulgences than the apostle by his sermons. Hmm? He's better than Peter. But more than this, said he, indulgences avail not only for the living, but for the dead. For that, repentance is not even necessary. Priest, noble, merchant, wife, youth, maiden, do you not hear your parents and your other friends who are dead who cry from the bottom of the abyss? We are suffering horrible torments. A trifling alms would deliver us. You can give it and you will not. See how he's playing on their emotions. Well, Martin Luther reacted to this sale of indulgences. And his reaction was to nail 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. He began to preach against indulgences. Frederick had not allowed Tetzel into his territory. Why? Because he thought it was a wrong thing to teach? No, because he was thinking, he's going to sell these indulgences. The money's going to go to Rome. And we'll have this flight of capital from Saxony, from Wittenberg, going to Rome. I don't want to have all our money go to Rome. And so he didn't want, did not want Tetzel selling indulgences there. Uh, but Luther was, was preaching against it, not because of money, but because of his teaching that repentance was not necessary. Martin Luther preached repentance and faith as the way of forgiveness, not indulgences. And Tetzel was upset because his income is starting to fall off. So on October 31... 
1517 at noon, Martin Luther nailed to the door of the church, which was apparently the public announcement place, 95 statements, don't, don't try it on our doors here, uh, 95 statements arguing the evil of indulgences. The following day, November 1, All Saints Day, found many going to church, and they copied his theses from this proclamation and printed them. Now we have Gutenberg. And this spread all over Europe. They get translated. They're written in German. They get translated, I think it was German, into English and other languages, and they spread like wildfire. Let me just read uh, some few of these. Number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying, repent ye, intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be a constant penance. In other words, you don't just do it at the start of the Christian life, you keep repenting. And the word penance, number two, neither can nor may be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, to confession and atonement as exercised under the priest's ministry. In other words, the priest doesn't control forgiveness. Number four, therefore, mortification continues as long as hatred of oneself continues. That is to say, true inward penance, repentance, lasts until entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That goes against some who teach that, well, once you're repented, you're done with that. Now you're forgiven for life. You don't need to worry about sin anymore. That's a common teaching today in some parts of the world, hyper grace. And Martin Luther wouldn't have bought that. Number 21. Therefore, those preachers of indulgences err who say that by the Pope's indulgence, a man may be exempt from all punishments and be saved. Number 27, they preach vanity who say that the soul flies out of purgatory as soon as the money thrown into the chest rattles, countering Tetzel's claim. Now, he may not have been clear at this point about purgatory, you see. He still has some grave clothes that he has to shed. Number 28, what is sure is that as soon as the penny rattles in the chest, gain and avarice, greed, are on the way of increase. <laughs> he really nailed it. But the intercession of the church depends on the will of God himself. In other words, it's, you don't buy this. On the way to eternal damnation are they and their teachers who believe that they are sure of their salvation through indulgences. You think you're going to hell, heaven by this? No, you're going to hell. Number 94, so we're getting near the end. Christians should be exhorted to endeavor to follow Christ their head through cross, death, and hell. Number 95, and thus, hope with confidence to enter heaven through many miseries rather than in false security. Your hope of heaven is in Christ, not in indulgences. And so in all of this, he still is respecting the Pope. He still thinks, if you read them all, that the Pope is a holy man who would not approve of all these things that Tetzel is doing. Guess again. Number 50, going back in the middle of them, he says, Christians should be taught if the Pope knew the ways and doings of the preachers of indulgences, he would prefer that St. Peter's church should be burnt to ashes rather than that it should be built up of the skin, flesh, and bones of his lambs. So he thinks the Pope is not in favor of this. He was to learn differently. So what was the reaction in Europe to all of this? And I'm checking my time. 
Many rejoice to see the abuses of the church addressed. And even some Catholic scholars like Erasmus, and he remained in the Catholic church, rejoiced to see the courage of Luther. There was an uproar, a great movement of the spirit. As some saw a mere German monk is standing against the whole hierarchy, the whole power of the church, and the church was a power. Within a month, a copy of, the, of these 95 theses arrived in Rome. So what did the Pope do? Well, the Pope and the cardinals, these heads of the church, thought at first to minimize this and say, ah, he's just a, Roman, a German monk. They don't pay any attention to it. It'll blow over. But Pope Leo eventually saw the danger that this posed to the Roman church. He tried to silence him. He sent a cardinal, Cardinal Cahitan, to meet with him at Augsburg. And Cahitan tried to convince him to recant, that is to uh, say that he was wrong, but he would not recant. He said, I will not turn a heretic by revoking the opinion which made me a Christian. If I reject what I've said, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I will be a heretic. I will not turn heretic. I will rather die, be burnt, be exiled, be cursed. Now, he's as late as 1519, so two years after the 95 Theses, he's still trying to prove that he's a good Catholic. But he's only against the abuses of some people in the Catholic Church. But what happened now is that the Pope sent a skilled debater, Dr. Eck, to meet him in Leipzig and to convince him he is wrong in a debate, to convince the world that Luther is wrong. And so he drew Luther to this debate, and by now Luther is seeing that the whole thing is rotten from bottom to top or top to bottom, that the rottenness extends to the Pope, and it's the teaching of the authority of the Pope that is responsible for much of this mess that they're in. Because you see, it was the Pope who authorized the sale of indulgences. And here's a, a description of Luther by uh, Dr. Schaff, one of the church historians. Luther is of middle stature. His body is thin and so wasted by care and study that nearly all his bones may be counted. He is in the prime of life. His voice is clear and melodious. His learning and his knowledge of scripture are so extraordinary that he has nearly everything at his fingers' ends. Greek and Hebrew he understands sufficiently well to give his judgment on interpretations. For conversation, he has a rich store of subjects at his command. A vast forest of thoughts and words is at his disposal. And you read his table talk and you see he could talk about anything. His polite and clever. There's nothing stoical, nothing supercilious or haughty about him. He understands how to adapt himself to different persons and times. In society, he is lively and agreeable. He is always fresh, cheerful, and at his ease, has a pleasant countenance, however hard his enemies may threaten him, so that one cannot but believe that heaven is with him in his great undertaking." That was the observation of some. Here, uh, Luther began to see that church councils also erred. See, the Roman church would quote councils. The council says this. Well, that was the end of it. But Luther began to see that they erred in council. Like, for example, the one at Constance that condemned John Huss. 
as a heretic. So he was led to see the great principle, sola scriptura. It's scripture that is our authority, not councils, not popes, but scripture. This was a great principle of the Reformation. Well, during this period, his truth is becoming more and more clear to him. Uh, he begins writing addressed to the German nobility. Uh, in 1520, he wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church, an attack on the papacy. And then the papacy, the Pope has no alternative but to excommunicate Martin Luther. So there's the bull of excommunication that comes to Martin Luther. He just throws it in the fire. It has no effect on him because he is now convinced his mighty fortress is not the Church of Rome. It's the living God. And those foes are about him, raging against him. Read that hymn again in the light of what we've just heard. You see how this man was ready to stand against the world, as it were. Why? Because his God was his fortress. And he was strong because of that confidence in his God. Well, he went to the Diet of Worms, not Worms. Uh, because there he was summoned by the emperor to appear two questions were asked is are you the author of these books he said yes are you going to renounce them what not unless you prove to me that they're an error well he asked for a night to to consider and he withdrew for a night but he said my conscience is subject to the word of god here i stand i can do no other so help me god Amen. Well, from here, as he was going home, he had a safe conduct, but of course, Roman safe conducts were about as good as the paper they were written on, about that much, worth that much. So on his way home, the elector Frederick, his prince there in Wittenberg, arranged for him to be kidnapped by some knights, he was brought to a castle in the Wurtberg. And while he was there, he began the translation of the scriptures into German. But while he was there, he had to return to Wittenberg after just, uh, I forget the exact timing, something around a year. Because Karlstadt, this man Karlstadt, a fellow reformer, began pushing things a bit far without teaching. And so he starts smashing uh, idols and uh, making a lot of changes, where, which the people were not altogether ready for. And the principle is that when you do Reformation, you do it on the basis of teaching, not violence. And so he had to rush back. And maybe he was a bit too conservative at this point in his reform. We could argue that. But um, he argued for moderation. He settled there until his death. I have two minutes. So... Fast forward. <laughs> Until his death in 1546, he's there in uh, Wittenberg. He marries Catherine, Katharina van Bora. And he's happy in his married life and he's teaching and he is a bulwark himself in a sense of Reformation teaching spreading 
through Europe. Now, what are the lessons before we close? Well, Scripture alone is the judge of truth. Martin Luther, Luther had to learn that kind of the hard way because he initially was giving credence to the Pope and the councils and all that, but he saw they contradicted Scripture. Scripture alone. Forgiveness is not bought with money, not bought by your being good. I'll be a better person. I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll try my best. It's not good enough. What's good enough for God? Perfect righteousness. Where can you get that in this wicked world? Only one place. The Lord Jesus Christ. Go to him. The just shall live by faith. It rang in Martin Luther's ears and heart. May it ring in your heart as well. You have problems of conscience? Am I ready to die? Am I forgiven? How can I be forgiven? Only one way, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have him, you have a perfect righteousness. God looks on his son and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if you have his righteousness, the father looks on you and says, this is my son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. Not because of your works, but his work. The truth of God simply, here's the third lesson. The truth of God simply boldly proclaimed can turn the world upside down. What are we doing here at Trinity Baptist Church? What are we all about? We're about proclaiming God's truth with reliance upon his spirit and his work. He'll turn the world upside down again. Is that a fool's hope? Not at all. We are confident in our mighty fortress, and who will do great work through his word by his spirit. Another lesson, God can use one man who's determined to follow his will. All the, the, all the, the, the houses in Worms were, had devils on every roof. Martin Luther said he was not afraid. Our confidence is in our great God. Let us determine to do his will, to follow his way. Reformation is not easy. There was a great upheaval in Europe. Indeed, wars followed. But we need to persevere in following scripture. And the last lesson, I just read this verse this morning in my Bible reading. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Martin Luther didn't have it easy. He was persecuted. He was chased. Be ready. We're not above our master, but persevere. And so, brethren here at Trinity Baptist Church, may God strengthen our confidence in him through this brief review of Martin Luther's life and times. And may we prove to be like him. Useful in his kingdom, in our own way, in our own place. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this man, Martin Luther, whom you used mightily to turn the world upside down. Oh, Christ had done it some 1,500 years before. Sin, evil, error had made their advances, but you're still on your throne. Sin, evil, error is advancing in our day. We have confidence. You are still on your throne. 
and you will accomplish your purpose and you will build your church. Increase our confidence through our study today. And may even some who yet are outside of Christ, may they be drawn by the testimony of Martin Luther to find peace of conscience through Jesus' blood and righteousness. We ask in his precious name. Amen.